Hey guys, I hope you're really enjoying this podcast. Um, I just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to uh, express their support for the the project. Uh, I really do appreciate it. It really does help to hear the constructive feedback, the criticism, the support. All of it means a lot. It has come to my attention that I'm supposed to ask you to subscribe to this podcast, to wherever you listen to your podcasts, on Spotify or Stitcher or Apple Podcast, where it is applicable, please leave a nice five-star review. Uh, And also be sure to follow me on Instagram at PreoccupationPod. Other than that, this is episode two, part two of three, The Mountain of Fire. Enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be. If you leave Jerusalem and you head a little further north, you're going to come across the economic heart of Ottoman Palestine, and that is Nablus. And there's there's one quote that I found from a a priest traveling through Nablus and sometime during the early Ottoman era, and he writes that the inhabitants of Nablus are most proud of it and think there is no place in the world equal to it. And you will see that that proves to be a very accurate way to describe Nablus and the people in it. This city is one of the most interesting and one of the most fascinating cases in helping to understand and unpack Palestinian culture at this time. And so Nablus is the first town where you find a third social class, at least in any sizable number. You remember I talked about the Fellahin, the peasants, and I talked the Bedou, the Bedouins. But now there's another social class that you can find in 16th to 19th century Nablus, and that is the Tujar, the merchants. And the merchant families form their own class, and they are very much urban Palestinians. They trade in olive oil, grains, and famously at that time, textiles. Now, families and tribes are institutions of power, but in the case of the merchants, they're actually able to redraw these power boundaries and these tribal alliances because they derive their power from sources that were in many ways unique to Palestinian society at this time. One source of power for the merchants came from the complex web of alliances that they wove. Typically, a merchant family like the Nimirs in Nablus or the Tuqans 
would have had an alliance with a strong rural family like the Gerards. Now, these alliances would be formed through business deals and through marriage. Another source of strength was their regional trade networks and their ability to move goods safely and get these highly desired goods around the region. Lastly, and I think I'd be remiss to not mention this, a decisive source of strength for the merchants of Nablus was, of course, their wealth. Prior to the 19th century, as I mentioned, that Nablus was the economic center of Palestine, and the merchants were at the nucleus of that economic activity. Now, it is due to these sources of power that the merchant families could, in many cases, forego old tribal alliances in favor of new alliances that place them at the center. There are recorded cases where uh, Bedouin tribes that were previously allied to various families raised a banner for war, and some of the merchant families refused to respond. And they didn't respond because they no longer felt that they had to. Now they had new alliances and new networks and new systems of power that they were plugged into. Well, the power of the merchants was also the power of the merchants was ultimately one rooted in relationships. Sure, relationships that were not built on the classic tribal lines, but these were relationships nonetheless. And what that means is that in practical terms, trust was an essential, indispensable, highly valued attribute in Ottoman Nablus. It won't surprise you then that most merchant families of Nablus also filled the ranks of the ulama or the Islamic scholars of that era. And this was not some, I can hear the cynics saying, oh, that's very convenient that the Islamic scholars are also the ones making all the money. No, no, no. This was not some cynical or opportunistic use of religious authority. So it was much more complex than that. We live in a time where your reputation as a good, honest, trustworthy person really is not that important in a relative sense. You can accomplish a lot as a dirtbag. One reason for this is that most of our interactions are with institutions, not with people. Brands go to pretty great lengths to remove the individual from the picture and ingrain a brand identity in their employees. We are asked, as a matter of policy, in fact, to not discuss our personal beliefs with customers. In fact, we've gone a step further than this. Actually, we've begun anthropomorphizing corporations, but that's maybe another conversation. In any case, our transactions and communication between institutions is also heavily governed by laws which are backed by state instruments of coercion. If I pay for a service and that institution, McDonald's, Walmart, whoever, that institution fails to deliver that service, I have recourses that I can take that will hopefully, hopefully <laughs> rectify my losses. Even when I have a dispute within an individual, we are often just social insurance numbers and a case number somewhere. In our world, even the societal carrots and sticks are institutionalized, and they come in the form of financial incentives, credit scores, criminal records. What that means is that you can actually be a degenerate. You can live your life as a reprobate. 
But so long as those state-backed institutions do not recognize your shortcomings, so long as your shady, dirty shortcomings don't fall on the radar of the state, you'll do just fine. Well, in Ottoman Palestine, the situation is very different. I mean, for one, as we will see with some other communities in a moment, use of the Sharia courts, though common and extensive, was not mandatory. If I, today, if I get in a car accident in Vancouver, I have to declare that car accident with the insurance corporation. I'm legally obligated to do that. There are certain crimes where if they're committed, I will be held responsible, even if I was the victim, for having not communicated that crime to the police. Well, in Ottoman Palestine, there is no state authority that's obligating you to use the Sharia courts. If you have a problem with a family member, you do not have to go to the courts. So you can opt to handle the problem yourself, though everyone knew precisely well what that would look like. Moreover, the absence of a coercive instrument obligating you to accept the outcome of a court ruling meant that a powerful individual or a powerful tribe, could theoretically choose to simply ignore the ruling of a court. Now, what that meant was that for the people of the time, each time they did business, there was a high degree of trust involved. And that trust was earned over time. Now, as Bishara Dumani puts it, quote, cultural capital was the glue that held these networks together. The surest way for merchants to accumulate this type of capital was through the cultivation of religious status, whether by means of education, marriage into a well-known family of religious scholars, service in a mosque, charity to religious institutions, or membership in a Sufi order. Combining a religious career with a business career was the norm rather than the exception and had the aura of a time-honored tradition. The religion-trade connection was so deeply ingrained, in fact, that the very language of merchants was, and still is, heavily coded with religious phrases. This does not mean that religion was used cynically as a tool of manipulation. Rather, it served as a medium of communication that reinforced actual or perceived attitudes and behavior. The aim was not to encourage popularity as much as to instill authority and respect, on the one hand, and to build a sound reputation for piety, honesty, trustworthiness, and moral uprightness, on the other." End quote. Now, I'm sorry to quote him at such length, but it really did capture the essence of what I'm trying to say here. Each of Nablus's merchant families knew that their personal worth was only as, valu as valuable as their reputation. If you had a bad reputation, no one will do business with you, even if you have money. If you have no money but a good reputation, things are not good, but they're definitely better than if it was the other way around. It was piety that became a pillar of trust among the merchants. And should a problem arise, it was their piety that obligated them to accept the outcome of the Sharia court rulings. Consider in such a world what would actually happen if a merchant did decide to simply ignore a court ruling? Other people would conclude that this is a person who cannot be trusted because they will evade justice at the earliest opportunity. It really is hard to overstate the importance 
of reputation in a world like this. A reputation and a family's reputation would be evoked regularly in business meetings. So you would have someone from the Tuqan tribe and someone from the Nimr tribe or the Abdul Hadi family or any of these families or a Jarrar from the hinterland, from the Fallahin. They would come to see each other if they needed something. And a conversation would go something like this. They would begin with their formalities and then they would say something to the effect of, you know that my grandfather and your grandfather were close friends. So yes, yes they were. They say, and they fought in the battle of so-and-so together when the rebellious Bedouins of such and such a tribe raided our village. They fought side by side. Yes, yes they did. And so in honor of the relationship of our family, and then they will make their request but they will evoke the reputation of their family and the relationship that they have with one another in order to solidify the trust that already exists between them. Well, now considering how much time I've spent speaking about Nablus's merchants, you can be forgiven for thinking that there were no other social classes in the city, but there were. And in the hinterland of Jebel Nablus, so in the mountains of Nablus, outside of the city center, there were powerful peasant tribes and they were the ones that ruled those mountains. Something fascinating about Nablus in this time is, well, history is abound with cases where those who possess the means of production and capital come to dominate those who, just to put it simply, do not. The entire political philosophy of Marxism rests on that assumption. And yes, Marxism was a post-industrial ideology, but I think if Marx had visited Nablus, he would have been surprised at what he found. Because while the merchant families of Nablus derived their power from their networks and their ability to move goods from place to place and their money, the Fallahin, the peasants, had a totally different source of power. They had the power of violence. And that threat loomed large over Nablus. Regarding the Fallahin of Nablus, I think Bishara Dumani writes it best, where he writes, quote, The power of rural chiefs was ultimately based on violence or the threat thereof. These chiefs lived in strategic fortress-like compounds located in seat villages, which served as their political and military headquarters. Using their quickly mobilized peasant militia and their command of the hilly terrain, they could project their forces to control the villages in their area and the approaches to Nablus. In effect, they could restrict or relax the arteries of local and regional trade and, in the process, reward or punish particular clans and or urban trading families. They rarely had to resort to violence, however, because they operated tightly knit patronage networks in which peasants traded loyalty for protection. They also commanded allegiance by inserting themselves into the social fabric. They lived among the peasants, married into the key clans of their subdistricts, and transplanted their own clan members into a number of strategic villages. End quote. So let us unpack all of that. What is it that made a peasant tribe strong? And what made some tribes stronger than others? Because it is beyond doubt that not all of the peasant tribes were the same. I mean, for some, well, some were healthier than others, but what makes a healthy or successful tribe? Well, for a tribe to be healthy or successful, it needs to be able to do two things. First, 
it must be able to use violence against other tribes, be they peasant or merchants, if the situation requires it. And second, it must be able to draw rank within its own tribe. That means they must be able to project that violence inward as well. I think the first point there is pretty obvious. A successful peasant tribe can use the threat of violence to force the hand of either other peasants or merchant families or whoever else they need to. Oh, okay, that much makes sense. But being able to turn that force inward, that's also an essential function of pe- for peasant tribes. I mean, think about this for a moment. What would happen in such a world if, a, if an individual peasant from one tribe in, I, I don't know, in a fit of rage, went and unjustly uh, disrespected some important merchant. So you can imagine that that merchant and the merchant's family then will go and communicate directly to the chief of the tribe that they're not happy about the disrespect that uh, that they faced at the hands of this, you know, maybe it's some petulant runt somewhere. But if the chief of that tribe is not able to rein in his tribesmen, that will have consequences for the entire clan. And in a world where reputation is as important or more important than money, that merchant family may blacklist the entire tribe. This whole principle was dramatized very well in a, um, was dramatized very well in a BBC series called House of Saddam, which aired, I think about 15 years ago now. It's a pretty accurate show about the life of Saddam and and his family and his kids. And there's a scene where Saddam's son-in-laws, who had just betrayed Saddam and his family, were allowed back in the country. And and he had promised them that the state of Iraq will not uh, punish them for their shortcomings. And then they come back and they get a knock on their door. And it's a member from the Ba'ath regime who's also Saddam's cousin. And they were also Saddam's cousins. So they said, what's happening? We were given amnesty. And the man says that the state of Iraq found you innocent, but the tribe of Al-Majid finds you guilty. You can (laughs) understand then that they needed that function to be able to control the tribe to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again. So let's go back to Nablus and let's just to paint a picture of 16th to 19th century Nablus. You must imagine then that there are wealthy merchants in the core of the city who produce highly valued textile goods and export it all over the region. They produce things like soap. They also produce things like olive oil. They export raw cotton. That becomes important in a moment. Um, Out in the mountains, though, there are these peasant tribes who have relationships with the various merchant families. The two are locked in this delicate dance. These two social classes are bound together through this balance of power And these relationships rest on mutual trust between the two. And if that isn't enough drama for you, keep in mind that there are also Bedouins there as well. Now, the life of the Bedouins is not as rigorously documented as that of the merchants, which is unsurprising when you consider their lifestyle. But the Bedouins, they play an important part as well. See, for the most part in Palestine, the Bedouins occupied zones that I guess today we would refer to as like a a no man's land. And their nomadic lifestyle made them really ideal 
for moving goods from one place to another, or at the very least, assuring the safe passage of goods from one place to another. So, if you're a merchant in 17th century Nablus, and you want to get some soap out of the city, you need to make sure that you've been courteous to some of the peasant tribes so they could open up the mountain roads to allow your goods to exit the city. And then you also need to make sure that you've been very nice to some Bedouin tribes or else your goods might not ever make it to their destination. And so when you consider the power of the peasant tribes, when you consider the strength and influence of the merchants, you won't be surprised to hear about the resolve of the people of Nablus over the course of the next hundred years of this story. And it's because of that strength and that resolve that Nablus colloquially is known to the local people as Jebelin Nar, the mountain of fire. Now, one segment of Palestinian society, which I have not mentioned at all at this point in the podcast, is Palestinian women. Now, for agrarian families who needed all the help that they could get, the physical labor of Palestinian women was indispensable. There are diaries of travelers who document how Palestinian men and women worked in their communally owned fields together. And remember now, most of Palestine was pockmarked by hundreds of villages of a thousand people or less. And so a small village probably could not afford to forego up to 50% of their able-bodied labor. Over the centuries, the economic pressure that agrarian life placed on Palestinian women produced some quirky social traditions that valued and elevated the physical strength and vitality of women. Years ago, my, my mom, she told me a story about a Palestinian tradition that took place as sort of part of the, the marriage process. Now, traditionally, and what I'm about to tell you, definitely took place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. My, my grandmother was subject to this. So, the women of a suitor's family, so like a groom-to-be's mother, let's say, would come to visit the family of a bride-to-be. The families would exchange pleasantries, and, and then the young bride-to-be would be invited to come and serve tea or coffee and, and exchange in the pleasantries. And while all of this seems pretty run-of-the-mill to the average listener who has any experience in the Arab and Muslim world, just keep listening. So the groom-to-be's family would then casually produce some uncracked nuts and make a casual request that may sound like this. Say, yeah, Habibti, sweetheart, I've forgotten my nutcracker at home. Would you mind cracking these nuts? so I can share them with your mother. And so this bride-to-be, the girl, would then politely accept and begin cracking these rock-hard shells with her teeth. And the mother of the groom-to-be, who perhaps arrived in a rickety, horse-drawn carriage, would bring up how she brought some bags of grain with her as a gift to her hosts, but they are, oh, so heavy, and she's in need for a nice, 
strong girl to go and lift these bags into the house. And so the bride-to-be would then heave these incredibly heavy bags into the house. This whole farce, this whole charade evolved to give families an opportunity to evaluate the health and the working potential of these peasant women. My grandmother, she personally went through this. And so I have personal evidence that this persisted into the early 20th century. And I don't know if this still happens in Falahi communities, but if it does, someone please message me and let me know. Very curious. Anyways, I've chosen to bring up women now to explore a question about how they fared in securing their rights in this era. Now, when I say securing their rights, I mean that in the context of the time and place that they lived. So what I'm referring to are their rights within the Sharia. The Sharia, Sharia, (laughs) Islamic law, guarantees rights of divorce, inheritance, income, freedom from abuse, list goes on. This is probably to the surprise of some Islamophobes who are used to hearing that Sharia does none of these things. But anyways, laws are just pieces of paper, though, unless they're adhered to. So I want to explore how Palestinian women navigated the legal landscape of the time how they navigated the legal landscape of the time. And Bishara Dumani, who I've cited extensively in this episode because he is a uh, researcher who focuses uh, on many subjects relating to Palestine, but has specialized in the subject of Nablus. He's done some extensive research on this subject in his book titled Family Life in the Ottoman Mediterranean. It's a great book for anyone who's interested in this subject. And what he does is compare the life of women in Ottoman Nablus and Ottoman Tripoli, Tripoli, the, the Lebanese one, not the, not the Libyan one. And this is a city in, in the north of modern-day Lebanon today. And it's an interesting comparison between two predominantly Sunni Muslim Levantine communities of the same era. Now, to understand how women fared in the legal tradition of the time, we have to also understand the type of events that would have led women to seek legal recourse in the first place. As I just mentioned a few moments ago, many listeners, when they think of the Sharia, they think of ISIS beheading videos, they think of floggings. The Islamophobia industry has done a terrific job of turning the word Sharia into a political bomb. Well, thankfully for us, the Ottomans were great record keepers. And so the Sharia court records, known as the Sijil records, give us a very good idea of what made it to court back then. And the main reason to go to court in the early Ottoman Palestine had nothing to do with beheadings and floggings and amputations and the main reason that people were going to court, going to the Sharia courts, was regarding the subject of awqaf, or family trusts. A waqf is a family endowment. So, in now, even to the, the Muslims who are listening, that when they think of a waqf, they think of it as an institution of perpetual charity. You can build a well, a school, a farm, a library, 
any public good and designate it as a charitable institution in perpetuity. And while this is undoubtedly true and an accurate description of awqaf, so awqaf is plural of waqf, so this is an accurate description of these family endowments, this only made up a fraction of how these endowments were used in early Ottoman Palestine. Now, as I tell you about these endowments, remember that in Ottoman Nablus, power was fluid and volatile. As Bishara Dumani puts it, spheres of influence in Nablus were, quote, multi-generational patron-client networks, volatile male spaces that required carefully nurtured and sometimes violently sutured political and social alliances between the heads of rich and powerful urban families and the leaders of armed rural extended families and clans, end quote. Now, in such a world, someone may want to ensure that a piece of property stays in the hands of their family. So, they transform it into a waqf. And the waqf contract would read out that this tree, this well, this building, whatever, doesn't matter, will pass on to my descendants until the biological termination of my family, at which point it will be transformed into a public good. So, in a way, just to kind of help you envision this, people were going to court to have a document that says that this piece of property legally belongs to them and there is some legal recourse if someone tries to take it from them, and it will continue to belong to them until the termination of their family, and then it will be transformed into a waqf. By applying it as a waqf, they've almost, to, to compare it to a modern-day institution, they've almost notarized their ownership of that land. And so it is a charitable act in the future. So the question that I, that I sought out to answer then is how successful were the women of Nablus in accessing family endowments to which they were legally entitled? And the answer is not very successful at all, especially compared with the women of Tripoli. Now, some historians who have done similar comparisons have tried to answer this claim with the assertion that Tripoli's interaction with Christians improved their treatment of women, but this is nonsensical, especially when one considers that Christian women in Tripoli of the time fared worse than their Muslim counterparts. Anyways, the explanation boils down to the unique power dynamics in these two cities. Land in Tripoli was typically small and privately owned. It's called Ard Mulk, privately owned land. By contrast, much of the land owned by the peasants in Nablus was massive and in many cases publicly owned Ard Mirri. I don't know if there's if it's Mirri or Miri because it's a transliterated word. But what that means is that it's kind of the equivalent to our modern day understanding of crown land, but it's exclusively farmed and resided on by a specific family. So they have the right to farm it and to reap the benefits, but technically Often in Nablus, the land was owned by the state, the Ottoman Empire. Most of the Sharia court judges in Tripoli were not locals, 
they were brought in from out of town, from Damascus, from Homs, from Hama, from Beirut, from Lafqiyya, from other places. By contrast, Nablus's judges and Sharia court officials were often natives to the city and belonged to the local tribes. Lastly, families in Tripoli tended to reside among their nuclear family. So they resided in a house as we would understand it, with a mother, father, children. In Nablus, the families resided in massive estates among their tribe. So let's put this into practical application for your imagination. So imagine for a, mo a moment that two women, one from Tripoli and one from Nablus, okay? So imagine for a moment that a woman from Tripoli may go to court to dispute the ownership of a bustan, a garden, whereas her counterpart in Nablus would be going to contest her rights over a very similar case, but over a bayara, an orchard. The woman in Tripoli would be contesting a property claim against her late husband's family in front of a judge who is from Damascus. Meanwhile, the woman from Nablus is making the same claim, except she isn't just challenging her husband's mother and father, but his entire tribe. And she is contesting this claim to a judge who may be from that tribe or who may be indebted to that tribe. To summarize this point, Bishara Dumani writes, Quote, the key differences between the religious establishments of Tripoli and Nablus during the early modern and modern periods were scale, relation to the imperial center, and sources of income. Tripoli's religious establishment was large, diverse in terms of sects and institutions, partially self-organized as a guild, closely connected to Istanbul, and well-financed by a plethora of charitable and family wakfs that created jobs and supported mosques, schools, and other foundations. Nablus's religious establishment, in contrast, was small and limited to a few families integrated into, if not subordinate to, the local elite, weakly linked to imperial networks, and not nearly as dependent on income from waqf foundations. End quote. So, women... People who were making claims on behalf of women or people who were making claims because they were due to inherit from women all had to face these same challenges. So this was not just a challenge that women faced. But if suppose that two cousins were going to court, one who is due to inherit from a mother and one who is due to inherit from a brother, so some type of relationship like that, the one who is due to inherit from a man would have a much better chance of success in Nablus, even if, legally speaking, and in accordance with the Sharia, the woman had the stronger claim. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that this went unnoticed in Ottoman Palestine, and I don't want to leave you with the impression that no one tried to fix this. There were efforts to fix this and to rectify this even back then, if we go back to Jerusalem for a moment, one of the most notable scholars of the 18th century was Hassan al-Husseini. Yes, Husseini, from the famed Husseini family who I mentioned in the previous episode. He issued a religious edict, a fatwa, stating that anyone who did not give women their proper, proper inheritance was a kafir, a disbeliever. 
Now, considering the status of the Husseini family and their standing in Palestine, this was a landmark proclamation. And this probably had a major impact on the lives of Palestinian women all over Palestine. But due to the inherent power dynamics of Nablus, it had little change there. Now, when you read these accounts, the sense that you get is that the application of Sharia law, it varied wildly from town to town. And despite my personal lamentation, the inability of Nablusi women of this era to successfully access their Islamically promised rights, I find the diversity in this legal tradition to be incredibly important for our modern understanding of not just Palestine, but the Arab and Muslim societies in general. This is a long way of saying that anyone who thinks that their version of Sharia law, the one floating around in their head, is the only one that existed in the past, really probably has no idea what they're talking about. Moreover, this is an important point for idealists and activists and reformists. In so many places, things are not going well, and there are so many young and enthusiastic thinkers, activists, who are trying to fix the problems of the Arab and Muslim world. And a comprehensive, just, well thought out, and even in this case, divine law, is still only as effective as its real world application. And what that means is that things are only as good as people's willingness to follow through with its ideals. The power dynamics of Nablus were such that women and the young were severely disadvantaged vis-a-vis the old and the powerful. So whatever societal problem you're trying to solve, just understand that it needs to take into consideration the very real and very local power dynamics of your environment. And as we head north and leave Nablus, we can arrive at our final destination of this part of the podcast, and that is the northern city of Safad. Man, see.